Well, good morning. As uh, Pastor Melanex mentioned at the beginning of our service, Pastor Jones is, uh, is not here. He's traveling this morning. Um, he will be continuing his series on the book of Romans next week. Uh, but this morning, we're uh, going to turn to the Old Testament, specifically to 1 Kings. So if you would turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Kings 12, uh, in the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 293. Uh, just a couple of thoughts as you're turning there. First of all, um, I want to encourage you that if you don't have a Sunday school class and you want to learn more about 1 Kings, if you haven't studied it in a while, uh, the Perseverance class uh, and uh, Lamar Allen, who does an excellent job of teaching, is teaching through a survey uh, of the Old Testament right now, and he's in 1 Kings. And so I'd commend that study to you. Um, please, uh, he's a fantastic teacher. Um, I'd encourage you to be a part of that. Second, um, I also want to just qualify something to say that you know, when we look at the kings of Israel, um, what we're being set up to see in the text are images of, of, of faithfulness, uh, pictures of, of what we long to see in a king, but usually we also see uh, great pictures of failure, uh, pictures that make us long to want to see something different long to see something more conformed with what God's intent the king ought to be. And sadly, as we look at this passage, we see things that we, we, we do not want to see in a king. Um, the context for 1 Kings 12, um, Solomon has just died. His son Rehoboam has uh, beginning his reign. And um, if we understand the context that happened right before us in 1 Kings 11, we know that uh, Solomon and his reign started so beautifully, but ended in, in sorrow and sin and ultimately brokenness. I think it's, it's, it's quite broken in light of uh, how God even relates to Solomon. With David, he sent prophets, but to Solomon, the Lord appeared twice. Uh, Solomon knew um, God's law, he knew the commandments, he had great wisdom, but his heart was turned away from the Lord and, uh, and he rejected what the king ought to be. He sought foreign wives just as he was warned against in Deuteronomy 17 and the consequence would lead not only to rebellion but a fracture for which God's people uh, would be torn apart never really healed in the age of the kings. And what I find amazing about the Lord's promise is that he doesn't wait to fulfill this promise, but perhaps what's even more amazing is that he uses uh, the hardness of Solomon's own son, normal means, we might say, to bring about this judgment. Hear God's word from 1 Kings 12 as I read it to us this morning. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. 
Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly in forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young, of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined with you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah, the Shilamite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all, the Is all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster of the forced labor, and all of Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us and meet us in your word this morning. O oh Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever had one of those moments that just almost seemed a bit surreal as you sat back and watched and wondered what just happened? When some seemingly slight decision led to a significant reality change. One of my first jobs after graduating from college was to work for Wells Fargo in a mortgage loan processing center. I, uh, I was in the IT department and my department was surrounded by all these other different departments and they were employed, many of whom were, were temporary employees, temp workers. 
And one weekday, I, I remember the day fairly clearly because it was so stunning to me. Um, all of the temp workers were given a lunch and at the end of the lunch, they were asked or instructed to turn in their badges and sent out the building because their position had been terminated. And all of a sudden, they were gone. Hundreds of workers just missing. As I sat at my desk and looked around, there was no more people noise that was filling the building. Friends who I enjoyed getting to know, who I'd started to minister to, were gone. And I remember thinking to myself, what just happened? What's going on here? I imagine some high-level executive making a decision that, that must have made sense on paper, looking at the numbers, but was clueless of the impact that it would have on the lives of the people. And for some of my friends, I remember thinking, their life is going to be completely changed by this. I wondered would they see God's sovereign hand at work in their loss? Would they come to see it over time? Well, this morning we approach a passage that speaks about a more somber, a more painful perhaps event. One in which it wasn't a corporate decision to save money, but it was a family that was ruptured because of a failed king and it tore God's people apart. If you are an Israelite at this time, you've seen the triumph of David. You've seen the wisdom and glory of Solomon. And you've got to be wondering what just happened. Because the very next king, the very next action after Solomon dies, before Rehoboam's really even king, God's people are are completely divided. What's happening here? What just happened? Well, this was done according to God's sovereign hand, we read in verse 15. And yet it was done as a consequence of Solomon's sin, his idolatry. How quickly sin divides God's people. And instead of this pagan nation, God uses the hubris, the pride of Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, to fulfill the judgment that was due Solomon and divide God's family. Pride destroys family. It disrupts community. It's divisive for God's people. And in this passage in 1 Kings 12, we see that what is good and right only through the lens or perspective of what goes wrong, what's broken. One pastor put it this way, when, when we violate God's law, when we break his commandments, it isn't God's law that breaks, it's we who are broken. We break when we violate God's law and we become divided. Sin is, is an anomaly Well, this is the first point I want us to see in this passage this morning. The first brokenness, it points us to a division that God does not intend for his people. God has given us a family in which he intends us to build one another up. 
Now, where do we see that? We have to understand the context in this passage. If you look in the opening verses, you'll actually see a few head scratchers here. The first head scratcher we see is in verse one. Why is Rehoboam going to Shechem? Some of you may know what Shechem is, that city, uh, but you probably don't. It's not a well-talked-about city, even though it was well-known in the ancient world. It certainly wasn't the center of the uh, religious government uh, or leadership in Israel in those days. Solomon had just built the temple in a huge palace in Jerusalem. David made Jerusalem the center. So what is Shechem? Why would Rehoboam head to Shechem in order to become king? Well, there's a second head scratcher here as well in the language. Israel doesn't gather down in Jerusalem. They gather to make him king there. In a sense, that language almost implies them summoning the king rather than the king summoning the people. The people are summoning the king to Shechem. That's a head scratcher. Here's a third head scratcher. Why is Jeroboam there? Why is he the speaker of these tribes? If we know our our Bible history, we know that the previous chapter shares that Jeroboam was a member of Solomon's court and Jeroboam rebelled against his king and his rebellion caused him to flee into Egypt, which is what our text tells us, that he's returned now that Solomon has died. Why is he, this rebel, the spokesperson? Again, what's going on here? Well, I think we're subtly being told that God's people aren't acting like a family. They aren't acting like brothers and sisters. God's designed his people to be different from the other nations. He designed the king, in fact, to act in a particular way. Deuteronomy 17, 15 says it this way. You say, you may indeed set a king over you. This is apart from the other nations, not the way the nations do it. Whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Solomon, the king, was not to be like another king, like the world's kings. He was to be like a brother. And during his reign, he brought 30,000 Israelites. He drafted them into service to build the temple and to build the palace. And for 20 years, those 30,000 laborers labored, under hard labor probably. And it was his right to do that as king. But then we're told Solomon's heart starts to drift. He starts pursuing foreign women. His heart drifts away from the Lord. And in his pride, he breaks God's command He breaks the role that God had had from him, submitting to this this commandment that God had given, not just to be a brother, but to keep his heart away from, from, from multiple wives, to stay focused on the Lord, but his heart drifted from the Lord, and we're told that he develops the courts according to Pharaoh's daughter and builds her a home, and he repairs work for probably her around Jerusalem. He builds a milo, that's the, what the text uses. It's like a terrace, a, a large construction. And it's actually this milo, this terrace, that actually we're told Jeroboam, it causes him to go into rebellion. Why? Why does constructing this This Milo caused Jeroboam to go into rebellion. It's as if Jeroboam's had enough. Solomon has overstepped his reach as king. 
His heart and his drifting from the Lord has caused him to use laborers inappropriately in a way that's brought hardship, a hard burden on his brothers and sisters in the northern tribes. And this Ephraimite, Jeroboam, has rebelled against Solomon, the king. Solomon overcomes him and he flees. But Solomon's sin, it breaks and leads to the mistreatment that would cause rebellion. Solomon continues by building high places, other places for pagan gods. And the Israelites, they're taxed, they feel mistreated. They're certainly not being treated like brothers. And so they meet with Rehoboam on their turf in Shechem, their city, the city Jeroboam would later make his capital, an Ephraimite city. They make Jeroboam their speaker because Jeroboam seems to have their best interest in mind. And they are willing to make Rehoboam king so long as they get the right answer from that king. Their relationships had devolved into a business negotiation. This is not how we were made to be, brothers and sisters. We were not brought into the church as the body of Christ to be transactional, but to be relational, to be a community. God is building a family together, one where we learn to love each other, where we accept each other's foibles. You're probably learning over this past year all of my little foibles. One where we assume the best of our brothers and sisters. One that we ought to be concerned for one another's needs over and above our own, even in ministry and leadership decisions. We're laying down our lives for each other. That's what he's calling us into, to be a family, not to be like the other world and the other nations. And God can be far more patient with us than we can be with one another. If you're new to this church community, And if you're wondering how to be a part of the family of God, I wanna encourage you to stick around after the service to attend a Sunday school. But also, we've got a really wonderful opportunity right after church and right after Sunday school to enjoy being a family together in a church picnic. If there's any hesitation in your hearts, please put that hesitation aside. Come be part of the family. Come fellowship with us. Together, God made us to be a family. Here's the second point. The brokenness shows us that God, it gives us a lens that God did not intend for us to be segmented generationally. But God has gifted us with generational roles in each other's lives. Specifically, to pass along wisdom of his faithfulness. Now in verse five, we read that Rehoboam realizes that this scenario is broken. He senses it well enough and he's wise enough to discern that there's something amiss here. He can't figure it out on his own what to do. He wisely calls for help. He seeks the counsel of others as we ought to do as a community, as a church. We should never make our decisions in isolation. We should be building and seeking the wisdom of others And Rehoboam starts with the right group. He goes to the older men. In fact, what distinguishes between the two groups in this passage is nothing other than age. 
One is defined by an oldness. Others, young, youth, being old, they saw and stood before Solomon. They saw what had happened. They had experienced the wisdom of Solomon and the faithfulness of God during Solomon's days. This younger generation is defined by, by being grown up, not seeing uh, what, what had happened in Solomon's day, but seeing what Rehoboam had seen. And the advice that both these different groups give couldn't be farther apart. Listen to what the old, older men give as an advice. You can read it in verse seven here. It's, they say, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. You see, this older generation knows the struggles of Rehoboam's father. They know the dynamics of the northern tribes. They know that the relationships need to be restored. And that the only way they can be restored is through the king's humbling himself to serve them. These older men are are discerning God's wisdom. They, they know God's law in such a way that they see that the role of the king is one of service and that it's through words of healing that unification is built. Now the younger generation gives their crack at this. Verses 10 and 11, it says this. Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So scourges, whips that have pieces of bone and metal and stone tied to the end. See, the language of the younger men was actually, it was encouraging a burden, enabling a deeper burden. In fact, one that would have been worse than the Egyptians had placed on God's people when they were slaves to the Egyptians. You see, they, they sought to perpetuate the brokenness of their family members by breaking them even further. It should give us pause for how we handle and see brokenness in the lives of others. You cannot further break people into wholeness and unity. We can't wear them down enough so that they'll finally address their broken pain. No, we serve them. We lay down our lives for each other, we love them. Certainly there's places for addressing sin. Certainly there's places for accountability. But we don't bring greater, broken, we bring greater brokenness by seeking to break them further. And this is the wisdom of the older generation is to turn away from the brokenness, to turn away from the burdens See, in my experience in our culture, and perhaps you know this experience, it overlooks the role and the value of the older adult and the older generation. We're constantly pushing ourselves to look and to dress, to feel, to be younger. We dye our gray hair, 
when the Proverbs say, gray hair is a crown of glory. In every stage of our lives, God's sanctifying work is producing stories of his faithfulness in our lives, one that the next generation needs to hear, one that teaches us how to line up our hearts to God's word. Last month, we held the Legacy Conference here, and uh, one of the keynotes, Pastor Joe Novenson from Lookout Mountain Prez spoke And he shared about his ministry, which has become a ministry to the older generation, the oldest generation. He goes around to assisted livings and and nursing homes, shut-ins, and he cares for them. And during one encounter with one of his members at his church at an assisted living facility, he described a a former boxer, kind of what he would would describe himself as kind of a mean old man uh, as he was getting older, Uh, one who used to fight and box and, and try and beat people up. And one day he asked Joe, do you know why I look this way on the outside? His hair had fallen out, teeth were missing, his body was more limp. And Joe, having no idea what that answer was gonna be, asked him to give him the answer. The man replied, I look this way, God made me look on the outside what I am on the inside. Joe described the man as gospel illustration in shoes. I think that's what we read, Jason Brown read earlier from 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's reminding us. On the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. We try to live without them, But God gives them to us and he in fact brings them on ourselves to teach us that life is about God's faithfulness, not our own. That when we build our identities on anything other than Christ, those become stripped away as we get older, as we retire from our works, as our beauty perhaps fades. We see and show the faithfulness of God in ways that teach a younger generation to be more and more dependent upon him. This is where the older generation, you all who are older, and I'll let you decide what's older and what's younger. If you have a question as to whether or not you fit in the older camp, ask your spouse. Um, If they tell you don't fix something on the roof, you're probably in the older camp. But the younger generation and the older generation, we have have needs between one another. You all need to have a voice. The older generation needs to speak and the younger generation needs to listen. That's how God intends for us to act. But it takes humility, it takes a, a shift away from this pride that we see emulated in this passage. It takes a willingness to 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 listen and to bear on the wisdom of those who've are a step ahead of us. Here's the third point. The brokenness that we see in this passage points us that it's not God's intent to give us a king who will divide us. But God has given us a king who will not divide us, but intends to unite us in himself. 
Verse 12, Rehoboam gathers the people again to deliver his answer. Sadly, he's ignored the wisdom of his elders and the implications are swift and clear. He doesn't listen. In fact, verse 15 and 16 both say he does not listen to the people. He doesn't care about what they're going through. He doesn't listen to their struggles. He's exercising his own authority, his own power. He's trying to be a great king and so he misses what real greatness looks like and it fractures God's people. Their response is immediate. What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. And so Israel went their own way. He went to their tents. God's people are torn apart. And verse 19 even tells us that it happened to this day, the writing of the author, They were never restored. You see, in our brokenness, we struggle to listen to one another. We don't slow down to hear the real struggles. We make assumptions about what we think is best, and it actually enables us from struggling to listen to the the Lord. This is a challenge to each one of us that we would slow down well enough and listen well. But more so, it's a call to us to see what God has given us in a greater king, a shepherd. A shepherd king who knows us better than we know ourselves. He listens to us because he identifies as a man of sorrow. He's acquainted with our grief. He knows our brokenness. He doesn't come to divide us or to inflict further brokenness, but by his stripes we are healed. By his brokenness, he bears our brokenness upon himself, becoming completely torn on the cross so that we would made whole and one with him. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus' ministry as king to us in Philippians 2. The choir did a beautiful job singing this to us. But listen to how the ESV says it. He says, "Who though, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pastor Jimmy Agin at In Town Press puts it this way. He says, if you were to see King Jesus in his incarnate form, you wouldn't help but be able to say, that's God. And if you were to see Jesus in his incarnate incarnation, you wouldn't help but be able to see him as a servant to all. But if you were to see him now, you wouldn't be able to help but bend the knee and declare and confess that he is Lord. 1 Kings 12, we see a picture of a failed king that points us to this servant king, 
a king that does not fail us, a king that does listen, a king who completes his work in the form of a lowliest servant, the advice that the older generation give to Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Jesus fulfills. And it's through Jesus' servants, it's through his example, but also his substitutionary death, through his obedience unto his father, that God's everlasting king has the means by which we find our unity, our healing, our humbling. It's why Jesus rebukes Peter for not letting him wash his feet. Jesus is showing us that the only way to come is to receive him, to receive his ministry to us. This humility that Jesus offers us is the humility he produces in us that enables us to love one another. The end of our passage this morning, Rehoboam has issued this challenge of burden. He's gonna increase the heavy yoke of oppression upon his own people. Our final and everlasting king gives us a different set of instructions. I've never seen any commentary linking this passage to 1 Kings 12, but I can't help but at least partially read them together. You see, in Matthew 11, Jesus says to the disciples, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It is the person and work of our faithful king that we are enabled to build up one another as a family throughout every generation, and by the bound binding we have in our union in him. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, by the faithful love of your Son, would you enable us to love and serve one another? Oh, Father, as our King, may we find our satisfaction not in position, power, or prestige, but find our satisfaction from receiving you as our King. Help us to move forward in unity, that we would listen to one another and so that in all things you might be preeminent. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.